Hey, we, we uh, have jumped into the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And what we're going to do over the summer is we're going to break down each week uh, one of the Beatitudes that Jesus, Jesus has for us. Um, last week, we'll recap a little bit in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the, remember what that next word was? Blessed are the, the poor in spirit. A lot of people read that and they immediately think that when we talk about blessed are the poor in spirit, they think financial material but what we've unraveled in that is Jesus was not talking about the material or the financial when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What he was saying is, blessed are the ones who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt and are in need of a Savior. Because you've got to remember, the community that Jesus is talking to is a Jewish community that is living out all of the traditions and all of the values of, of Jewish culture and Jewish religion and they felt like they had everything accomplished. They were following all the religious steps to do what they needed to do. And they were waiting on a coming Messiah. They didn't, uh, it had, the Messiah to them had not come yet. And even today has still not come for them. But Jesus was standing in front of them, which was the answer to all prophecy of their, that they heard from their ancestors and heard from the readings. And here is Jesus telling them, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt can't do it on their own, and they are in need of a Savior, okay? That was, that was number one. But we also, we step back, and let me quiz you to see if you remember, remember this. But when he said blessed, we said that word meant happy, but happy in the Greek, you remember what we said it means to be blessed, anybody? I know you're thinking it, and you're just scared to say it. To be made happy by God. Not by material, not by a bank account, not by anything else that, that when he says blessed, you are made happy by God. The poor are made happy by God when they realize that they're spiritually broken. And the next part of that verse says, for they, the poor, will inherit the kingdom. So who inherits the kingdom? Those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt and in need of a savior. Okay, this, you good on that? So if you missed it last week, we go through it in a lot more detail uh, that you can check it out online. It's, it's there. You can watch it or listen to it on our podcast. But we're going to dig into number two. Here's the frustrating thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that I believe that it's one of the most misunderstood readings in sermons in all of the scripture that people have read it and taken it out of context. I was having a conversation with my father-in-law this week and um, we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and he brought that up. As like, uh, he's, he said, I'm surprised at how many people miss the point. I said, I know, because here I am restudying this for the first time and how frustrated I am that I missed the point all these years on one of Jesus' most famous teachings. Because a lot of these things that Jesus is calling us to, uh, we've never really talked about. Like, we, we never really have these conversations in the church that we're to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, that we just can't do it by ourselves, that we are a people in need of a Savior. So the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge the bankruptcy. Now, we're going to move into the next verse, and he says this in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who, say this word with me, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, when we read this, our, our minds automatically would think those who mourn or those who are sad and those who can cry and those who can have a little bit of emotional 
uh, input into some things. And, and when we read it, that's what automatically comes out, that we think that this is some type of sorrow or a bereavement that Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have sorrow. But that's not what he's saying here. We will miss the point once again if we think that this sorrow is basically just us having some kind of, um, just being upset or, or being have some type of bereavement. But this is a sorrow of repentance because remember, this sermon that Jesus is preaching is, is building, okay? So the first step to having a relationship with Jesus is admitting that we are sinners and we are spiritually bankrupt and we need a father. And we come into true repentance when we do that, okay? This is the repentance stage here that Jesus is saying is, blessed are the ones who mourn for they will be comforted. And so the idea behind this beatitude is that we would grieve over our own sin in the same way that we would grieve over the death of a loved one. Now, this is a lot harder teaching, okay? Because what Jesus is trying to, to get this audience and even have us understand is once we recognize we're spiritually bankrupt, the idea that we're sinners should rattle us should bring us to a place of any sin that has been unrepented, should bring us to a place of grieving, as if we grieved over a loved one. So the, the mourning and the weeping referred to in this beatitude is not because of a financial loss. It's not because of a terminal sickness or a diagnosis. It's not over death of loved ones or loneliness or a divorce or a problem with children or rejections that you've experienced. The mourning that springs from this sense of sin is what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who mourn, and the mourning is caused because you've recognized that I am spiritually bankrupt and I'm in need of a Savior. You know what the good news of the verse is? The good news is the promise that comes on the end of this, that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You notice that there's a trend in these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They will inherit the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. There's always a promise tagged on to each of these Beatitudes. There's in some cases that this godly sorrow is what we would refer to it as. That we have this godly sorrow that we have recognized and have done an assessment of our lives and realized that there is sin. And Jesus is saying, do we grieve over those things? Do we take this seriously? In the Bible, there are nine words for the word sorrow. And the word mourn, here in the Greek language, is the strongest word that Jesus could have picked when he was preaching this. So if he, if he decides to take the strongest of the nine words to tag this on to our sin, how seriously do you think Jesus takes our sin? Like this, he wants it to be repented. He's saying, listen, you need to mourn. This needs to bother you. You need to feel, you ready for this word? Conviction of what we've done. Conviction. I mean, I think that's, a, that's something that a lot of us, in speaking for myself, that we don't feel as much anymore because we have, have, have begun to compartmentalize our lives and our religion and our spirituality from our, our daily lives. And so we don't, we don't feel it. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you want to be made happy, happy is found in the morning. And that doesn't make any sense, right? Have you ever cried and been happy at the same time? Well, not happy cry. I mean, you know what I mean. But have you ever been like distraught, upset, but yet happy? 
right? That's impossible. But what he's saying is, listen, when Jesus enters the picture, there is a mourning and an upset and, and, and a, a repentance, a sorrow. But when Jesus is in the picture, you can still be happy and sad at the same time. Sad with the situation, happy that there's a Savior to walk you through said situation. And so what God's doing is he, he actually blesses us. You ready? This is countercultural to what we've been taught. God actually blesses us by allowing us to experience deep sorrow. It's a blessing. It's a blessing because he, he allows us to experience deep sorrows over sin that made us needy for God in the beginning. So we realize that, man, I am poor in spirit. There's nothing I can do to get this relationship with God. That It hinges on Jesus and Jesus going to the cross and making me righteous, making me an heir, a son of the heir to be with the king. And when I've realized that, then you have to pull the weight of what our sin really cost. And, and then there's this mourning process. We would say this, that followers of Jesus, we do not excuse our sin, but we would grieve it, we would confess it, and we would repent of that sin. So here, here's the question that I would ask, how seriously do you and I take our sin? Does it bother us? Are we convicted? Do we mourn over it? Do we grieve it? Do we love it? Do we ignore it? Do we try to trivialize it? What, what do we do with our sin? Because I think a lot of times we, we just like to kind of excuse it. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. Can I, can I just throw this out there that sin is a really big deal? Because it costs Jesus his life. It's a really big deal. And so he says, blessed are these that, that mourns. So he doesn't want us taking sin lightly. He, he doesn't want us to make excuses for it. As, as followers of Jesus, we grieve our sin because we have broken the heart of God. We have broken the commands of God. We, we grieve that sin. And then we confess it. Confess. I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were talking about this confession, and she said, hey, you Protestants have really missed this. I said, what, what have we missed? She said, I know we don't agree on a whole lot in, in, in Catholic belief and your Protestants. But y'all truly miss confession. That y'all miss going to the Father and telling him what you've done wrong. I couldn't argue that point. Because we've lost. Now, I'm not saying that we need to set up a confessional booth next week and you guys come in and I'll pray with you and, you know, whatever. We're not doing all that. Here's the good news is that you and I can come before the throne of the Father and confess without any kind of worry that he's going to strike us down and kill us. That he, we have a father who speaks on our behalf, who's our judge and our justifier, so we can confess sins to God. So when we grieve them, we confess them, and then we repent of them. In other words, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to turn from this. I'm going to turn from the ways of sin. I'm going to turn to the ways that God would have me to go. And, and this is where this, this whole sin thing, it, it steers us in a way to move towards repentance. We grieve it, we confess it, we repent, we change the way. Jesus is saying this, that we miss the point when we mourn more over what we've lost than over what we've done. You ever 
been in trouble for something and you got upset because you got caught, not because you realized that you did wrong? I know you're probably thinking, no, I don't think I've ever experienced that. Let me help you out. You ever been pulled by the police? You see the blue lights? Have you ever gotten that ticket and we're just like, oh, I can't believe I did this, and you like start ripping stuff and covering yourself with dirt because you're just so, I can't believe I, I did this. I am so wrong. And the police officer walks up, and you just start confessing that I was doing 75 and a 25, and, and I'm, I am so sorry. And, I, and you just go on and on. Have you ever done that? No, not at all, because this is a holy church. Because when the police officer walks up the car, you're like, what did I do? Do you know why I stopped you? Don't ever answer that question. No, I don't know why you stopped me. You're doing 25 or 75 and a 25. Oh. Then they give you that ticket. And then you're like, God, I'm so sorry that I got caught. I should have been doing about 85. I probably could have gotten past them, right? And you've been in that situation where it's like you, you, you get... You get the ticket, and you have to come to terms that you deserve it because you, you were speeding. And you have to come to terms that, man, you shouldn't do this because there is a cost to that, right? And then all of a sudden, we, well, I'll see you in court, sir. I'll, I'll have my attorney call you, right? Um, and then you see them in court, and you don't have an attorney because you misspoke, and then you find out that you got to pay the ticket, and you lose about six points. And then all of a sudden, you start to grieve this thing a little bit when it, it starts to hit personally, right? You remember growing up as a kid, you would do something, and you were sorry that you got caught, but you weren't sorry for actually what you've done. I remember bringing a report card home first semester, and I got in trouble for it, and I was sorry that I got in trouble for it. I didn't truly grieve it, but I made the same mistake on the second report card. I grieved it for about a week. And then it turned into two weeks, and then it turned into three weeks, and then it turned into my entire high school career. Right, because I realize that this is not, I, I, got, I got to turn from this, like this is wrong. Grieving helps us to process, to think, and then it helps us to confess whatever that problem is that we've done and then make the declaration that I am not going back here. Like we're going we're gonna to move. There's a difference between mourning over what you've lost over mourning over what you've done and taking ownership. We've got to do better at telling ourselves the truth. And you've got to give yourself permission to tell yourself the truth. Is that we are all sinners. Every one of us. And we're all going to sin. But think Jesus' blood covers every single one of those. And that's what we stand on. We have been covered in the blood of Jesus. So we don't have to walk around acting like we have it all put together and we've got it all figured out. Because here's what happens with that. The enemy sees it and he attacks it and exposes it all. And so we're, we're being called just to live openly that I am a sinner. Won't you just say that with me? One, two, three. I am a sinner. All right, did y'all hear that? You feel better now? We went from being a really holy church that we don't get tickets to finally admitting that we're sinners. Just making sure you're following the trend here. The thing is that you aren't mourning because you got busted. You mourn because you are busted. You, you begin to see how your sins impacted other people in your relationship with God. I was having this conversation with somebody not long ago that 
a lot of what we're experiencing in the world is, is a result of our sin life. And me doing wrong and living outside of the, the commands of God doesn't just affect me. It affects you. Right? You living out the commands of God and breaking that and, and sinning, it affects everybody else around us. I mean, if you have a nasty attitude all the time, does that not affect your family? Right? Does it not affect relationships and friendships with other people? And maybe, maybe your bad attitude rubs off on somebody else, and then they get cranky about everything, and then they, it just spreads, and it just spreads, and it just spreads, because sin spreads. It's like a cancer. It comes. And so what we have to do is we have to get to a point to understand that our sin not only impacts us, it impacts other people, and most importantly is it impacts our relationship with God. There's a guy named King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. But you don't hear, hear a whole lot about King Saul because I'd rather talk about David because King Saul fails, right? So King Saul, there's is a, is a scripture in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul disobeys God's commands. That, that God sends Saul in here to give Israel victory in this battle that they're about to go to. And he says, listen, when you get there, I want you to wipe out everything. Like, I don't want anything left of them, period. You understand that. And Saul's like, got it, nothing left. Well, we get to 1 Samuel 15, and Saul comes in to fight this battle, and the instruction was from God, destroy everything. But Samuel, or Saul decides, hang tight. I like King Agag. If we keep him with us, what a name, Agag. That's what happens when your kid coughs up when they're babies, they agag. That's what you do. Um, I don't know where that came from. It's been a long night. And Anyway, um, he says we're going to keep agag, and not only that, we're also going to keep his finest of sheep. God's going to be okay with that because it's the best. It's not the dirty ones. It's not the best. We're just going to keep the king, and we're going to keep the finest of sheep. Now watch what happens in verse 24. Things escalate from verse 3 to verse 24. Saul said to Samuel the prophet, he says, I have sinned because he got busted. For I have transgressed the, commands, the commandment of the Lord and your words. And listen to this. I did it because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Oh, we should keep the king. Okay. We should keep these sheep, man. They're valuable. We could sell them. We could, you know, sacrifice whatever we want to do. Okay, we'll do it. Saul makes an excuse for his sin. Right? He says Saul wanted to get the public scandal out of the way so he could appear holy, going, oh, I'm so sorry. I did this, and I shouldn't have done this. Because I was afraid of the people and what they would say. I was taking their opinions. And so what Saul's doing here is it's the same thing that we do. We will try to, to confront our sin, but we want to get back to normal so quickly that we'll apologize without repenting, and then we'll end up doing the same thing again. We just keep falling right back in the same thing. We, will conf we, we don't want to confront sin or repent of it. So, this, so King David goes through the same thing in Psalms 51. King David expresses his grief to God over sin with Uriah. He, remember, he murders Uriah because he sees Bathsheba taking a shower and and he looks down, he sees her, he's like, man, that woman is gorgeous, she's mine. Uh, some, some scriptures would even, or some understanding 
would even say that what David did with her was even rape to her. And when she gets pregnant, he has to cover the sin up. Because when you sin, you've got to keep doing things to try to cover up the thing. But if you just confess it that you were wrong to start with, you don't have to play the trail of... You remember the person that lied and the lie got bigger, 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 bigger? Right. I went to... Um, we graduated from Dillon High School. And this girl, we, we go to the same college. And everybody asked where she's from. Well, she's from Dillon. I know exactly where she's from. But she would tell everybody that she was from Myrtle Beach. I was like, that's an hour and a half away. Like, you can't even get away with saying that. Like, we can say, where do you live? We live near Charleston. Like, that's pretty, that's 20 minutes down the road, right? But her lie just got bigger and bigger to where not only was she from Myrtle Beach, but also she was abused as a kid. And I'm thinking, what? Because lies expand. And this is what happens with, with David. Like, he has to keep trying to cover up, cover up, cover up, cover up. And he gets to this point in Psalm 51 after that whole debacle because he ends up having to kill Uriah because he didn't want Uriah getting mad at him and he's got a baby now out of wedlock and all this stuff. And he says this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It is against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's expressing his grief to God of his sin. We, we see this all throughout the book of Psalms with, with David when he's speaking. There's a true confession and a grief like he is mourning over the transgression of what happened between Uriah and Bathsheba. He's, he's, he's telling God, like, I've sinned against you. You know, when we sin, it's not against just each other. We sin against a holy God. But again, I want to remind you, as followers of Jesus, we stand in forgiveness and can repent of those things. I would say this, that a broken heart over sin is the prerequisite for genuine confession of sin. Your heart has to be broken over what happens. Because if your heart doesn't break over the things that break God, then we're not in relationship where we need to be with Him. We should be moved by it. We should be mourning over it. Sin is ultimately an offense against our God. Our, our mourning has to be grounded in that reality that God is offended by our sin. You know, the Bible says that you and I were, like, if you... If, before we were followers of Jesus, that we were the enemy of God. Think about that language, the enemy of God. We were against him, raging war against him. So I would ask this question is that when we confess our sin and we've been broken over our sin, are we generic or specific when we confess our sin? God, just forgive me for all the wrong that I've done today. Or are we very specific? God, today, I blank. Would you forgive me? God, show me, convict me, I repent of this. Do, are we specific or are we generic in our prayer? And, and do we confess these things individually as somebody who's really broken by our sin and, and sees it as an offense to God? See, in Leviticus chapter 1, and y'all probably already know this first because I know y'all hang out in Leviticus all the time. But let me, let me read this and explain it a little bit. And if you didn't get the Leviticus thing, just go home and read it today. And then um, I'll give you all the elders' emails. You can email them all the questions you want on Leviticus. He says this, if his, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering 
and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. In other words, they, they got to touch their sacrifice. they got to put their hand on the head of the animal that they're about to kill. This is for the forgiveness of sins is what we see here. It says, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Let me pause right here. If a person becomes a Christian for the first time, like what, what should I start reading in the Bible? This is not the place to start reading that. Right? Wait, they were throwing blood on what? Where? Let's, let's just start with the book of John. That's a great place to start. And he says, Then, then he shall flay the, the burnt offering and cut this thing into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put a fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons and the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire and on the altar. But his entrails, his legs, he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with the pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, that end part right there I can't quite grasp because I'm thinking the sights and the smells of what we just witnessed in this, this thing. You just slaughtered this animal. It's hot baking sun in, here in the desert. Where's the smell, the beautiful aroma smell? Anybody have like dead animal candle in your house? No? There's an idea for you entrepreneurs out there. The pleasing aroma was not in the physical. It was in the spiritual act of what was happening. I mean, how would you feel watching this being played out and knowing that this is happening because of your sin? Because this was tradition... In the Jewish culture, matter of fact, there's a rule law they're trying to repass in Israel that they want to go back to animal sacrifices. Um, but imagine the blood and the smell and the sounds and the death, and you're watching this and it's playing out in front of you, and you realize this is because of your sin. And I don't want you to miss this point. It was the sinner himself who had to kill the sacrifice. So I would have to go for my family and, and, and kill this animal and get it prepared to give to the priest, you would have to do the same thing. And we would have to watch this thing be played out of this burnt offering so that our sins could be forgiven. Like we're, we're seeing this happen right in front of us. When we read through the Leviticus and we see this, how God set this up was that this is how the sacrifice is going to happen. This is how forgiveness of sin is going to happen in this covenant of the Old Testament. You have to stop and think that Wow, this, this is not something that is distant. God makes us encounter our sin up close and personal. Like we're, we're on it. We're a part of it. For our sin to be forgiven, for us to have relationship with him. I would say that sin's a big deal because it requires the, the shedding of blood to secure the forgiveness. So how could I not feel any remorse for my sins when I realized that it cost Jesus everything? Thing to be that offering, that sin offering on my behalf. That he goes to a cross for us, that he, he is the perfect spotless lamb that will go and his blood will be shed, not spilled. That's the one line of that song that has always bothered me, the old hymn that says that where his blood was spilled. My kids spill stuff all the time. It's an accident. Jesus shed his blood for us. It was no accident. It was intentional. And he goes and he sheds his blood for us. How can we not feel remorse? How can we not feel that we 
are in desperate need of a Savior because of our bankruptcy and, and that this sin has separated us from our Father. But He has done everything to be able to, to redeem us and, and renew our right relationship with Him to put us in right standing. When we read the Beatitudes, what it, what it does is it, it, it helps us to realize that the poverty of our own souls, that we need to feel grief and remorse for our sins, but rarely do we think of mourning as being blessed. But here's what he says, because we've got to go right back to the beginning. Blessed are those who mourn and realize their sin, for they will be comforted. Can I tell you what the comfort is? In the forgiveness of our sin. Do you want to go stand before God with unforgiven sins and just take your chance of what's about to happen? No, we wouldn't want that. And we don't have to. Jesus says when you mourn over your sins, he himself comes alongside of you to bless, to be made happy by God, and forgive and strengthen you, and he himself gives you comfort. And your comfort is found in the fact that when we approach the throne of God and we approach him, that we always get a thumbs up, that we're always made in right standing with him. When you take your sin seriously, Christ doesn't leave you hanging. He confronts you. He blesses you by forgiving you. Jesus can uh, comfort us like no one else can because Jesus deals completely with sin over which we mourn. He, he deals with that. He's not afraid of that. He cleanses us from penalty. He gives us presence over the power of sin. This is why David will use this word blessed in the Old Testament when he talked about being forgiven. He says this in Psalms 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, for whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is the same David that did all this stuff with Uriah and had him killed and Bathsheba, who was telling us and grieving over his sin. Now look what he's telling us. is blessed at those who, who can admit the transgression because those who admit it, they are forgiven. And he goes on in, in verses 3 and 4. And he says, for when I kept silent, this is not confessing sin. That's what he's talking about. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up by the heat of a summer. What is David saying? When I did not confess my sin, it ate away at me. It decayed things. Because sin left undealt with will bring decay and destruction into our lives, whether we admit it or not, but it will. Because you can, you can deny it, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening. You know what I'm talking about? He says, my bones have wasted. And I love how he ends it because he says, Selah. In other words, pause. Think about what I just said. Unconfessed sin eats away and decays. And then Paul brings this up in Corinthians. as we, We're going to wrap it up right here, but, but I want to, I want to close this here. This is what Paul's getting at when he writes to the, the church in Corinth. He's already written one letter. He kind of scolded them. And so I'm pretty sure the second letter they probably left on the desk for a few days and didn't want to open it because the last one did not sit well because they were upset. But Paul writes the second letter to Corinth, and he tells them that they're upset with them, but he goes on to say this, that he rejoices with them, not because he calls them grief, but because their grief led to Repentance. Look what he says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For godly grief, you ready? 
Godly grief, mourning over these sins, is what Jesus is talking about, produces a repentance that leads to salvation, you ready, without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You deal with sin in the world's way, you die, you deal with it the way that Jesus has commanded us to in the scriptures, and we live forever. Godly grief over sins produces our earnestness in the church. And that's how Paul says that they have been comforted. They've been comforted because they've dealt with the sin. And 2 Corinthians 7, is, the passage is completely in line with this second beatitude. Because when we confess our sins to God, the Holy Spirit comforts us with the knowledge of forgiveness. That's in 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. So I would say this in closing. Christians take their sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. We are comforted and we are blessed by the forgiveness of Jesus. Not perfect. Because we've just admitted we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And we're not perfect. But here we are. As Jesus is preaching this, he's, he's wanting us to understand, listen, this is probably the hardest part of his teaching. Because he's telling people to come to terms with what they are. Yeah, you've acknowledged a spiritual bankruptcy, but you can't really truly acknowledge it if you're not mourning over it. And you don't realize the price that it's going to cost. And that's the backdrop. So, so here's my question today as we, we get ready to close. Where are you? Do we take our sin seriously? Have we taken a moment just to pray through sin in our life and ask him, what, where, God, where? Is there anything that I'm not aware of? Is there things I need to confess? Are, are there sins that need to be confessed to your spouse? I mean, what do you need to confess? We're going we're gonna to sing a couple of songs this morning, but as we do, I, wanna, I want us to do something if you feel led to do. But let's come to terms with our sin. And one way that we do that is through the cross. And Jesus shed his blood. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we would become the righteousness of God. It was through the shedding of his blood that he restored the relationship with us. And Jesus lays out this beautiful moment in the scriptures in the last moments of his life with his disciples where they together took communion and they broke bread together and he said this, this bread is to be reminded that this is my body that was broken for you and this wine this is symbolic of my blood that's going to be shed to cover the sins Jesus was saying listen there's no more sheep and bulls that need to be sacrificed. I am going to be the perfect spotless lamb, the once and for all sacrifice to restore our relationship with God. As we sing this morning, right here in the back, we have communion set up. And if you want, you can respond in this way of going and grabbing communion, coming back to your seat, and just spending a moment asking Jesus, is there anything that I'm missing that I need to confess? Is there unconfessed sins in my life that I've not confessed to you? And maybe there is something. And you already know what that is, and you need, to, you need to confess them. When you do that, take communion and be reminded of the price that has been paid for our sin. So, Father, this morning as we close, I just ask that your spirit would begin to do what it does best, and that is to bring convictions into our hearts and our lives. God, that, that this sin is keeping us from living the abundant life that you've called us to live. 
Although that you've already forgiven us for it, God, we've got to get it out. We've got to get it confessed. We need to confess that to you. I just pray that we would be bold in this moment to be obedient, to confess these things, God, knowing that when we do, when we mourn over our sin, you bring comfort in the forgiveness. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and let's respond this morning.